So cooking lessons for life. What favorite meals mean love to you? Think about it. They weren't necessarily the best ones, right? Usually had to do with who you were with, what you were doing. Raise of hands, how many of you like to cook? How many of you like to eat? How many of you like others to cook for you? <laughs> Both hands, right? <laughs> Most of us think better and are a bit happier when we have a full tummy. There's kind of a joke in my house uh, that you don't want to be around mom or Lisa when she's hungry. It's one of those Jekyll and Hyde kind of things. Uh, I remember years ago when I worked at Armstrong in Lancaster and we would travel on business and you often got stuck on a plane and you didn't eat on a regular basis. My colleagues learned that as soon as we got off a plane, they were to get me to something to eat because otherwise they didn't want to be around me. I got quite irritable. <laughs> when I was uh, six years old, I got an easy bake oven as my Christmas present. Show of hands, anybody who remembers an Easy Bake Oven, okay? That plastic pink contraption with its high-tech heat source, a 100-watt light bulb, was a magic machine to me. I was six. But what it was, it was the source of experimentation, a bit of chemistry, right? Find out what goes together and how it works and watching the little things rise in that little tiny window. Innovation, I could actually do things other than those little packets that came with the machine, because you got the little packets and they were probably like $2 to buy at the store, which was a lot of money back then. So my mom would teach me how to use the little Jiffy Bake mixes and stuff in order to make stuff. Creation, you know, wow, look at this. How many, what six-year-olds can make stuff, right? Autonomy, you could actually do it yourself. You really didn't need anybody else to help you. Success and failure. So think about those things. Experimentation, innovation, creation, autonomy, success and failure. Isn't that what life's all about? And I was learning that at six with a piece of plastic with a light bulb in it. I learned that I could also make mothers smile. We had family over one time and I went in the my bedroom and turned on my Easy Bake Oven and I made these little raspberry candy things that were like gumdrops. And I brought them out and of course everybody smiled and went ooh and ah and gave me praise. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of cool. You do this and people are happy. You do this and you get praise. You do this and people think nice things about you. So the early lesson was that food and cooking can make people happy. My little brain filed that away for future reference. That was my cooking lesson number one. Cooking as comfort for folks, cooking that can cause independence, and cooking that can bring you some praise. It's kind of the perfect blend for me of art and science, too. Because at the time, as a little kid, as I was learning about things, um, not only were the things that I cooked kind of pretty and interesting, 
but they also could be messed up if you didn't follow the instructions. Um, and that was an important lesson too. You know, how does that apply to the things I do in school? How does that apply to the things that we all do in life? Art and science. Like life, the uncertainty in cooking can cause angst for some. If you're one of those kind of buttoned up folks, we all know and love some. I'm not one of them. If you saw the mess in my house, you'd know that. But if everything has to be just so, cooking can be um, a bit angst-ridden because you can't always control the weather. You can't always control whether that oven device is going to work the way it's supposed to. I remember my mom having one of those uh, temperature gauges, a thermometer hanging in the oven because she couldn't trust the readout on the oven, right? And she always told me one side was hotter than the other. Well, for some people, that would drive you crazy. You know, if you're one of those scientists where you want all your variables buttoned up, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of um, frustrating. But so is life, right? We don't have a little oven gauge for life that says, oh, this is going to be a warm day, this is going to be a cold day, this is going to be a hot day. So I get that that causes angst for some folks. And that's one of the reasons why not everyone loves cooking, I think. It's because there are variables and there are easy ways to mess up. Unlike what um, John Irving was saying in The World According to Garp, I don't think cooking is as exact. Uh, you know, I think probably it's more exact than writing, which is the analogy he was drawing, but I don't think it really, really is exact. But for others, for those of us who are creative, for those of us who are a bit risk takers, um, what's exciting about cooking is that we can embrace the unknown, we can take some risk, we can try different variables, and sometimes they screw up, hopefully not at Christmas dinner. Um, but then we can also return to what I would call the tried and true, those memories from our childhood, or even uh, you know, a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese. You know, there are some things that are just pretty easy. We know it's going to fill us up. We know it's going to taste a certain way. And we can retreat to those comfort levels without always trying to experiment or to do something um, more different or interesting. Again, how does that relate to life? Right? There are some days where we're thinking, let's do something crazy. And there are other days where we just want the book and we want to be in the corner and we want to make sure that the, the heat is on the electricity is working, all's right with the world. Memories and history and family are all tied up in cooking and recipes. I came from a somewhat dysfunctional family. So cooking as I grew older became a retreat for me because it was dependable. I knew I could cook for myself if I had to. And that sounds kind of sad. But now that I look back in my life, I'm really grateful for the catalyst that taught me how to cook, and that gave me that autonomy and independence and the self-confidence that came from knowing that if I had to make a box of macaroni and cheese myself, I could do that. And I could do that at the age of nine, and that's pretty cool. Some of our kids don't get that autonomy because their home life is really, really great and stable and wonderful. So how do we mix up some of those things? There are some meals with your families that you will close your eyes and think about that were probably some of the most joyful times in your life. I have those too. There are other meals that you close your eyes and you think, oh my God, it was a disaster, either because you made it yourself and Joanne's smiling, 
<laughs> or because something bad happened during that meal, right? Your mom and Uncle Joe got in an argument. Grandpa fell asleep at the table. So-and-so didn't show up. And you don't equate it with the food that was served that day, but believe it or not, you probably do. There are certain meals that I remember that when I see chicken pot pie, as much as I love it, I think about this, this bad day with, with Aunt Vivian. You know? and, and when I think about chicken livers, my mom used to make sautéed chicken livers. You, you bread the fresh chicken liver in flour and salt and pepper, and then you saute them in a pan. And then you take them out, and you put in chicken bouillon and, and probably some milk, I think, and you make this gravy, right? So there's this big blop of these brown turd-like objects. <laughs> and then she would make rice. And, and I don't know if your family was this way, but with certain meals, you always had the same accompaniments. Right? So if you did chicken livers and rice, it was always green peas. So I didn't like the chicken livers. But rather than today, like we would do for a lot of kids, where we would make them a special meal, right? I learned that I did like the gravy. So my meal that night would be a big old pile of white rice with a lot of this chicken liver gravy over top of it and a big old pile of peas. So I learned to eat my vegetables if I was going to fill up. But those are the kinds of family memories that are attached to food. We don't necessarily know it. We're not necessarily aware of it. And we're creating those memories other, every day for the folks that we live with or the folks that we're, we're around. There was a story on National Public Radio a couple of years ago. And I'm a big NPR listener in the car. I'm a good UU, right? So I listen to NPR. And they were interviewing um, college students about their favorite meals and having them relate um, what mattered to them food-wise and what they missed, you know, because when you go to college, the food's not the same, obviously. And one story really stuck in my head. It was this young woman whose family had eaten the exact same meal for dinner for her entire life. The same meal every night. She was from a large family. They weren't very wealthy, and so they didn't eat out. She'd never been to a restaurant before she went to college. She told the story that it wasn't until she went to college and some young women, her dorm mates, were sitting around one night talking about the meals they missed from home. Like, oh, God, you know, I really wish I could have my mom's pot roast. Or I could so go for Aunt Lorraine's lasagna right now. That she realized that other families didn't eat the same meal every night. Apparently, her mother only knew how to cook one thing. Roasted chicken, green beans with mashed potatoes. They had it for dinner every single night. Seriously, this is a true story. To her, that was the norm. She didn't feel cheated because she didn't know any better. Her nutritional and caloric needs were met, right? pretty healthy meal, and it was satisfied because she was with her family, the food was good, she liked it, her siblings apparently liked it, never really caused the problem. She didn't feel compelled to look for anything else. Is there an analogy there? 
eat the same meal every night. It wasn't until she realized that there was a whole other culinary world out there that she began to view her family diet as odd or restrictive. How many people go to college and start to question lots of things in their life, right? Okay? A lot of them end up here. <laughs> so imagine eating the same spiritual meal every day. Imagine eating the same food every day. Imagine only being with the same people every day and never anyone else. If you didn't know any better, you maybe wouldn't feel that that was restrictive. But once we know better, once we meet other people, once we experience other spiritualities, then we start to think, maybe I've had my blinders on, right? So ask yourself whether you have your food blinders on or your blinders on in any other way in your life. As with life, I worry a bit about those who grow up without the experience, the guidance and the demonstration that goes along with food and with cooking and with eating. If you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle and you have an opportunity to mentor a child, can you give them the gift of self-sustenance? Are you giving them the gift of self-sustenance? How can we help our kids learn the um, benefits and the attributes that come from cooking and food and creating enjoyment for others? I don't think we do our kids any favors and, or maybe even our spouses <laughs> or significant others by preparing all their meals for them. We cheat them out of the satisfaction of creation and learning by their mistakes. And isn't that true about life in general? We can't have the training wheels on for everything. And while we're talking about life, let's talk about love and, and romance. In fact, the quote in the front of the, of the order of service today is, cooking is like love. It should be with abandon or not at all. Evan's dad was a good cook. He had worked in restaurants, and he had picked up a lot from the chefs that he had worked with. And albeit he was all of 20 or 21 years old when I met him, he knew how to make a cheese souffle from scratch. Now, how many 20-year-old guys do you know? Who can, how many people do you know who can make a cheese souffle from scratch? It, had, it involved making a roux and adding flour and shredding special cheese and whipping the eggs and keeping the yolks and the egg whites separate and doing all of this in a certain order so that it didn't turn into a pancake, right? I mean, we're talking a cheese souffle like this, this high. Impressed literally the pants off of me. <laughs> so, so I love to cook. Even then I love to cook, but I couldn't make a cheese souffle. So, you know, it, he stood out in the, in the whole scheme of the other 19 or 20-year-old pimply-faced folks that I was exposed to in those days. Um, cooking can matter. It can, it can matter to um, your sustenance, but it can also matter to your uh, personality. And it's a way to express yourself. What about meals and mealtime, gathering with friends and family? We're all so busy today. How many folks do you know 
who probably don't eat a meal together with their loved ones a single day of the week. That microwave oven in our kitchen has become Buddha. And we're all on our schedules, and we grab something out of the fridge or the freezer, and we shove it in there, and we eat it, because we have to, because we're hungry. We need that fuel. Or we do the drive-through. If we're lucky, we're doing something relatively healthy, like Boston Market, and not Mickey D's. But even Mickey D's these days, you can get a salad. And I get all that. And I was one of those parents. You know, I had soccer, and softball, and baseball, and, and debate team, and all of the things. Um, but it can't be every night of the week. It can't be every night of the month. It can't be every night of the year. There's, there's an essence to sharing a meal with people that um, really can't be created, I don't think, in any other environment. Um, there's something about breaking bread. And there's probably something in the Bible about that. Work and school and sports and meetings, they all get in the way. And one of the things that suffers is cooking and meals and mealtime. And I know it really does sound old-fashioned, but I fear that we've been sacrificing some sacred ground and relinquishing precious time together, even if it's just Kraft macaroni and cheese. Uh, if we can find a way to put aside that time, maybe it's just Wednesdays, where people actually sit at the same table without the TV on and actually share a meal and talk to one another about their days or their lives, or their troubles. You never know what you're going to get. Sometimes you just throw a topic in the room. OK, tonight we're going to talk about the Tour de France. <laughs> Tomorrow night we're going to talk about Middle East strife. I don't know. There's an old adage in business, and I've been in business for, for 30 years, that if you can get a person that you want to do business with to break bread with you, to sit down for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner or even coffee and a biscotti, that there's a certain barrier that's broken down. The obstacles are overcome. And there's a common ground that gets established. And I'm sure many of you nod your heads when you, when you hear that. You know, If you've been in sales at all, you know that it, once you can get a prospect to share a meal with you, they start to talk about things other than the business at hand. They start to talk about their family. They start to talk about a variety of different things that allows you a little insight into their soul and the opportunity for a relationship to be established. I had a thought while I was working on this sermon with everything that's going on in the Middle East right now. What if we had all the boobies of the world or the best cooks in Israel and the best cooks in Palestine, the moms, cook a big feast and we hold it right there on the line set up the tables and the tablecloths, and everybody comes and sits down. And you all need to eat together. And we'd make sure it was dietarily appropriate for each person's religious beliefs. But what if we had to break bread together? What if we had to eat each other's mother's food? What difference would that make? Would there be some common ground that maybe folks aren't able to see now? Mothers taking care of everyone, regardless of background. We would say, eat, eat, manja, if you're Italian. It's good for you. What if we did that right here in Hartford County? You know, one of the things we struggle with as our congregation or our fellowship is, is kind of helping people get exposed to who we are and what we're about. 
you know, maybe there's an opportunity for us to host some communal meal. We've got some good cooks here in the fellowship and invite folks in to sit down and break bread and to talk about whatever, whatever might benefit all of us in the county. One of the things I like about cooking is diversity. I can eat Mexican one night and Italian the next night and French the next night and fish and chips another night. And I think that's true with our relationships in our lives as well. You know, how do we make our lives a smorgasbord? And I may not like tacos as much as I like duck a l'orange. But if I had duck a l'orange every night, I wouldn't like it as much. So I really need the tacos once in a while to break things up. I think that's true with our relationships, too. None of us are perfect. There's no such thing as the ideal friend. But they certainly enrich our lives with their uniqueness and their diversity, if you think of each person as a meal in your smorgasbord of life. I don't have to abandon my reference, reverence for my mom's apple pie in order to enjoy yours or yours. I went to the Peach Festival yesterday. Anybody go there? St. Mary's down on Old Emerton Road. Amazing gaggle of folks there, all because of a peach. They've turned that into something pretty amazing. And I bought a peach pie, and I bought a peach blueberry pie. Bought them, didn't make them myself. I could make them myself. But I wanted to sample someone else's culinary talents. And when I ate my piece of peach pie, there were things about it that tasted different than mine that I really liked. And then eh, the crust was kind of soggy. Mine's better. <laughs> but I wouldn't have wanted to miss out on that experience. On a recent trip to Italy, which I'm still talking about, so bear with me, I spent a week cooking and eating with 14 strangers. Do you think we were strangers at the end of that week? We had people from Argentina, we had people from Canada, we had people from California, from Chicago, from Boston, from Italy. We learned about each other's allergies and our ailments. We learned each other about each other's jobs, families, joys, politics, complaints. Much like this fellowship, cooking brought us together with a common bond. We helped one another when something wasn't going right. So someone over here is rolling out their pasta and it's falling apart. And they'd say, Lise, what am I doing wrong? And then I'd say, well, here's what I would try. And we'd try to fix it. So it wasn't just the chef who was guiding us. He'd kind of get us started, throw the hand grenade in the room, so to speak. And then we would all really end up working as this ad hoc team. It was very, very cool. We helped one another with our challenges. We celebrated our successes. Every night we sat down and broke bread together, and we said, wow, who made the panna cotta? You know, and there were two or three people who worked on the panna cotta. Brava, brava, this is amazing. Years ago, there was a book entitled Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Many of you have it in a box somewhere in your house. I'm certain of it. And it drew the analogy of motorcycle maintenance and the rituals that go along with doing a good job with that, keeping your tools clean and doing things in a methodical fashion, and how there was an analogy between that and a, and a, and a life. 
keeping your life in, in good order. And I posit that cooking and the process of preparing food for ourselves and for others has that same opportunity. As with life, cooking and eating is a matter of balance. And I've learned, especially with where I work um, in a drug and alcohol addiction place, that there are some with a really unhealthy relationship with food. We all have friends and family and maybe even ourselves. And that's not our fault. Um, they perhaps use it to fill a hole in their soul as others use drugs or alcohol or other compulsive behaviors. But there's an opportunity to examine the role that food has in our lives if it's one of angst for us and to try to figure out how we can move it from an angst-ridden process to something that can be fulfilling because it can bring a lot of joy. I think that's where the healthy example for our kids really comes in, helping them establish a healthy relationship with food as fuel for their bodies. For those of you who exercise, and I know we've got some you know, really strong exercise people in the congregation, you know the importance of fuel. Athletes speak of bonking when they run out of energy. You know, the Tour de France, if they haven't calculated their calories exactly right, they basically run into a wall. There's a kind of reverence for the fuel that they put in, the self-respect and the self-love that fuels our bodies to do what we'd like them to do. If you do yoga, there's a part of the yoga ritual where you thank your body for allowing you to do what you were just able to do. Most of us could benefit from slowing down a little bit. Much like today's meditation, if you're eating, take the time to honor the food that you're preparing or ingesting. Think about the folks who grew it or raised it. Being grateful that we have food at all for sustenance, because we know there's folks, and that, that was one of my father's favorite sayings at the dinner table at night. People are starving in Africa. You know, we all heard that, but it's true. It's really true. And considering how to make cooking and eating more of an experience and not just a chore. I guess it's my hope uh, following today's service that each of you will look at the process of cooking and eating a little differently, a bit more intentionally, even if the only cooking in your repertoire is pouring milk over cereal in a bowl. It's an act of love when you do it for yourself, and it's an act of love when you do it for someone else, especially if it is accompanied by your presence conversation, engagement with the food and with the people who are enjoying it. And so it is with daily life, slowing down to savor the moments, helping those who ask for help with their technique or their recipe, allowing ourselves to learn from others who may have more experience or simply a different, different repertoire Recognizing the essential ingredients, but embracing the novel, the new, the unusual, to create a more enriching feast. And sharing our talents with others to broaden our community and establish gratitude and common ground. Bon appétit and à votre santé, which means good appetite and to your health. Blessings be.